Isaiah 51 is our text this evening. If you need a Bible, it looks like Jim is eager to help you out. Isaiah 51. It's a fun time to be in this part of Isaiah. Kind of a happy coincidence. Couldn't have planned it, didn't plan it. But Sunday we begin Romans 9. We begin that section of Romans comprised of chapters 9, 10, and 11 in which Paul tells us emphatically that God's not done with Israel. The capstone of that section, you're familiar with it, most of you. Paul asks rhetorically, has God cast away his people? And he answers his own question, certainly not. Heaven forbid, of course not. How could you even think such a thing, Paul will ask. And the question that people sometimes pose, reading Paul's passion and Paul's conviction in those chapters, how can he be so sure? I mean, the destruction of Jerusalem hadn't even happened yet. Paul's writing Romans 58 or so. The destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, more than a decade away. The persecution of the church hadn't even begun in earnest yet. And so the question that, that some will pose, well, if Paul had lived to see all of that, would he perhaps have thought differently? If he had seen God's judgment pour down in Jerusalem three years after he died, would he be as confident that God still had a plan for the Jewish people. The, the Jesus juke answer to that question is, well, no, Paul was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But another answer, and an equally valid answer, is no, because Paul read, studied, knew, was intimately familiar with the prophets. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Daniel, others, who, yes, spoke of Israel restored to the land after the Babylonian captivity. That was the near-term fulfillment of many of those prophecies. But in those same writings, we see undeniably, we see unquestionably God pointing to a longer-term, more comprehensive, more dramatic even, fulfillment. Not, not, not to imply that Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is an insufficient answer in any way. It is, obviously, of course. But it's useful when people question, well, how do you know that you're reading it that, right, that way? How, do we, how, how are you sure that you're reading Romans 9, 10, 11 accurately with the right interpretation? when people want to lend their own allegorical interpretations to those chapters, and we'll talk about some of them this weekend, it's useful to be able to go back to the prophets and say, no, no, Paul wasn't starting from nowhere. Paul wasn't, wasn't beginning with, with brand new inspiration that, that was never before hinted at. No, God does nothing, Amos 3, 7, God does nothing without first 
revealing it to his servants, the prophets. And when it comes to something as, as important, something as epic as the salvation, the, the redemption and the restoration of Israel, especially God does nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. We're in Isaiah 51. Let's dive in. And we'll read God's promises to Israel centuries before Paul declares it. Centuries before the rejection of Messiah that necessitates it. Isaiah 51, verse 1. Listen to me. You who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Remember short-term, near-term, Isaiah is writing to people 150 years from, from, from where he's standing, 150 years in his future. People carried away captive to Babylon, people born during the Babylonian captivity, feeling, no doubt, abandoned by God. God, where did you go? Have your arms been shortened? He's also writing more than 2,500 years into his future to a remnant of Israel during the tribulation. A remnant perhaps cowering in the rock city of Petra in Jordan, having fled Jerusalem, having fled the, the, the persecution of Antichrist. God, where are you? We thought we were your people. To both those remnants to both those those believing remnants, those faithful remnants crying out, saying, God, where are you? God says in verses 1, 2, and 3, no, no, no. I'm here. And the way that you can know that I'm here is you can remember where you came from. Remember how you started. Remember I said... Verse 2, I would bring you forth from two people. From Abraham and Sarah. From two people, I brought forth your nation. I said I would do it. When Abraham and Sarah were old, when it, when, when it would take a miracle, I said I would do it and I did it. Because I'm a miracle-working God and I'm a promise-keeping God. So be encouraged. I'm God who birthed you as a nation, and I've never left you. There might also be an encouragement here as they look around. How few people, how few of the Jewish people survived in Babylon during the captivity. So many slaughtered during the Babylonian invasion. Few carried off. Few survived the trip. How few of us are there? God, even if you do restore us to the land, how few of us are there to, 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 to be restored, to rebirth the nation? How few of us in Petra, yet future, during the tribulation, 
How few remain that haven't taken the mark of the beast? And verses 1, 2, and 3 can also be read as God saying, I started with way fewer than you have. I started with two. Numbers aren't a concern. Verse 4, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I'll make my justice rest as a light to the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die like ma- in, in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. God encouraging those remnants, those parallel remnants, 150 years in the future, 2,500 plus years in the future. Verses 1, 2, and 3, he said, hey, look at the past. If you need encouragement, look at where we've been together. Verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, look at me, and look at what you know of me. Look at who I've revealed myself to be. I'm God who saves, and when I save, I'm God who saves forever. Last Wednesday, and again last Sunday, we looked at the resonance between these passages, these chapters in Isaiah, and Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we looked just this last Sunday. We reminded ourselves of Paul's glorious words, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week we looked at chapter 50, verses 7, 8, and 9, and we said, wow, that resonates powerfully as as Paul develops, not this, not that, not the other, nothing. And when he says nothing, he means nothing and no one will separate us from God. Here, Isaiah is returning to that theme. He says, my salvation will be forever. Doesn't that resonate with verse 39? My salvation will be forever and nothing will will diminish it. Nothing will come against it. Where does that salvation come from? We just read verse 5. He said, my arms will judge the people. That refers to his justice. But he says, my arm, in my arm, singular, they will trust. What does that refer to? Who or what is the arm pictured here? We don't have to guess. Glance forward just another chapter. Go to Isaiah 53, verse 1. What do we see there? Oh, uh, wrong chapter, sorry. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We know that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus, the one who grows up before him as a tender plant, the one in whom there's no beauty that we should desire him, the one who's despised and rejected by men, the one who's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We'll keep going when we get there. But verse 5, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, Jesus is the one who saves. In, Isaiah, in Romans eight thirty nine, did, was Paul thinking of that when he wrote, nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord? I absolutely think he was. It's Jesus who saves. Verses 7 and 8. Actually, before we get there, just worth calling out. 
I lost it. The earth will grow, verse 6, the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. Remember from our study in Revelation, that's a reference not to all who dwell on the earth, but those whose identity, those whose trust is in the earth and the things of the earth. Those who, who live their lives horizontally, the earth dwellers. You and I have a different citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. We reside on the earth, but we don't call it our home. That's the difference that Isaiah is calling out there. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not reproach uh, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the word will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Listen to me, God says. If you think about what I just said, if you think about my past faithfulness, my fulfilled promises, if you think about where you came from as a people, if you think about the mercy that I've shown you over the centuries, if you consider those things, you'll listen to me. And if you listen to me, you'll believe me when I tell you verse 7. You'll believe me when I say again, listen to me. Your enemies won't prevail against you. If I've been faithful in the past, surely you'll believe I'll be faithful to you in the future. Yes, your enemies will persecute you. I'm not saying they won't. They'll torment you, and it's going to go on for a really long time. But my righteousness, God is saying, my righteousness will always win. Why? Where does victory come from? Verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Who is that again? Jesus. Awake is in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Excuse me. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Okay, it just got weird there, didn't it? Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Okay, Jesus, Jesus is going to win the victory. But wait a minute. Awake is in ancient days. Jesus hasn't incarnated yet. And we're talking about the victories that Jesus won in generations of old. And then we're talking about Rahab, and then we're talking about a serpent, and what's going on here. There are study Bibles, I looked at a couple, that, that wave at this and say, well, this is the prophetic past tense, and this is speaking of Jesus, yet future, triumphing over that serpent that we read about in Revelation, that serpent whose name is Satan. Yeah, but No. Because awake as in the ancient days is talking about something that's really in the past tense. That's got to be something other than the prophetic past tense, where God speaks of something yet future as if it's happened. So what do we do? We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Where else do we find references to Rahab? Turns out, if you want to flip back a few pages, go to Isaiah 30. And look at verse 7. We read, The Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Remember, this is, this is the Assyrian part of Isaiah, where the question is, where is, is Judah going to look to for help? Are they going to look to the Lord, or are they going to look to earthly alliances? 
they looked to Egypt and Isaiah was prophesying, yeah, you're going to go to Egypt and they're not going to help you. In fact, it's going to be worse than if you didn't go to them at all. The Egyptian shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I've called her Rahab Hemshabeth. So there we see an equivalency. Egypt, Rahab. That's already been introduced in Isaiah's prophecy. So hang on with that. Are you not the one that cut Rahab apart? Are you not the one that kept, cut Egypt apart? Hold that. What do we do with serpent? You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but Ezekiel 29, verse 3, Speak, and thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers. I'll put hooks in your jaw and call the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. Sounds like a serpent. Are you sure? Yeah, a couple chapters later, Ezekiel 32, same thing. Ezekiel 32, verse 2. Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You're like a young lion among the nations. You're a monster or a serpent in the seas. So go back to our text. Go back to Isaiah 51. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? God is saying that Jesus is the one who delivered Israel from Egypt, from Pharaoh. That it was Jesus who delivered Israel in the Exodus. And once we have that in mind, verse 10 gets easy. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Or if you prefer to pass over. This is a reference to the parting of the Red Sea. And I'm, you probably know that archaeologists have found the land bridge in the Red Sea that, that, uh, that the children of Israel crossed over when the army of Egypt drowned in their, in their wake. Jesus is the God who delivered the children of Israel. Jesus is God who parted the Red Sea. Verse 11, Jesus is God who has done great things. We sang that last weekend. You have done great things, and I know you will do them again. That's what Isaiah says in verse 11. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Just like you brought us, Jesus, out of Egypt. Jesus, you're going to deliver us from Antichrist. Well, wait, 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 Patrick. Pretty big jump there. Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure? that this is not just deliverance from Babylon. Because, because it could be. It, it could be that they're calling on the name of the Lord. Lord, restore us back to the land from exile. Except, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Verse 11, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. Let the, so the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy they shall obtain joy and gladness. This is a reference. This is pointing us back to a prior prophecy. Flip back to Isaiah 35 this time. Oftentimes on Good Friday, when we talk about the seven statements of Jesus on the cross, we don't do that every Good Friday, but we do it a lot of Good Fridays. When we talk about the seven statements of Jesus on the cross, 
When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We remind each other, that's not a question. Jesus isn't baffled or bewildered at what's happening to him. When Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's gasping for air. And he's, and he's using as few words as possible to point at enormous truths. When he says that, he's saying, Psalm 22. That's what's happening. Because Psalm 22 begins with those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And goes on to, to describe the crucifixion in amazing horrifying detail, centuries before crucifixion was, was invented. In much the same way, Isaiah is using verse 11 of chapter 51 to point us back to the last time he said those words in chapter 35. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb shall sing. Water shall birth, burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water, and, and, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the highway of holiness, and, and so on. No lion shall be there. That's unquestionably, undeniably, unmistakably kingdom prophecy. Nothing like that has ever happened. Nothing close to that has ever been fulfilled. So we can know that what's in view here in Isaiah 51 is, yes, the return from Babylon, but yes, also much more than that, much greater than that. So reading in that light, back to Isaiah 51, reading through that lens, is it possible then to read verses 9, 10, and 11 as a prayer? Is it possible that this is prophetically the prayer of the believing remnant crying out to God, God, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Jerusalem, awake as in the ancient days. Save now. Is it possible saying, Jesus, you are the God of the Exodus. You are the one who dried up the sea. And you are the one who will deliver us. Possible I'm, I'm, I'm out on skinny branches here. Possible this is simply the father saying to the son, it's time. Possible it's the father saying to the son, go get them. Go save them. I lean towards the first, not that they're mutually exclusive. It could be a both and. But I lean towards this being a prayer of deliverance. Because look at the response. I, even I, verse 12, am he who comforts you. Who are you that shall be afraid of a man who will die and the son of man who will be made like grass? Jesus is the Christ, the son of man. The Antichrist is a son of a man. Just like in the first century, Jesus was the son of the father, 
But the Jewish people said, give us Barabbas, a son of a father. I lean towards this being a prayer, a pro- prophetically the prayer of the believing remnant, who is confessing their sin. Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I lean towards verses 9, 10, and 11 being that believing remnant saying, Jesus, it was you who came for us once. And it was you who came again and we didn't recognize you. In fact, we rejected you. But we're calling upon your name and would you come again? Verse 12, Jesus says, yes, I am he who comforts you. And how did we get here? You're fearing a man when the only one that you should have ever feared is me. Why did the Jews hand over Jesus? Why did they say, give us Barabbas? Because they forgot God. Because they forgot his promises. Because they forgot his faithfulness. It was true then, and Jesus is saying, and it's been true every day since then. For the last 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been nothing quite so much as a people afraid. You forgot the Lord your Maker, verse 13, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the, of the oppressor? Even now, God, God says to that future remnant, you're hiding in fear of a man. You're doing it again. You're doing it still. You're forgetting who I am. What I've done, what I've promised to do. Verse 14, the captive exile hastens that he might be loose, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I'm the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is, is, is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth. I told you when you said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I would return. You know what you need to do. I've covered you with the shadow of my hand that I might plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. Jesus saying prophetically, you think that the rock walls of Petra are protecting you. You think that this stone fortress is defending you. I'm protecting you, Jesus says. And I've been protecting you since I called Abraham out of his father's house. I protected you then. I'm preserving you now. Speak the words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Confess your sin. And we can resume our program together. We can continue fulfilling prophecy together. We can welcome, we can usher in the kingdom together. We can rule and reign over the world together. So awake Zion. Zion says to Jesus, The believing remnant says to Jesus, will you awake? Will you return? Will you protect? Will you defend? Jesus says, you wake up. Stand up, O Jerusalem, verse 17. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. The cup of God's wrath, that's a familiar idiom, right? We read that in the prophets. We read that in Revelation. Here God speaks of the wrath poured out of Jerusalem. Near term, for idolatry in 586 B.C. Long-term, for rejecting her Messiah. 70 A.D. 
an again yet future in the tribulation. Remember we read in Isaiah 40, verse 2, the outline of this section? And God said, you've, you've received double for your sin. Once in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, again at the end of the tribulation when the armies of Antichrist come against Jerusalem, decimating the population. In fact, read verse 18. There's no one to guide her. Among all the sons she's brought forth, nor is there anyone who takes her by the hand among all the sons she's brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in the net. They're full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. You've received the full measure of my wrath, God is saying, not once but twice. Fourth, four things in those three verses. Your city is, your population of your city is decimated. Your city is desolated. Your people are dispersed. Your survivors are, are devastated. It was true in 70 AD. It's going to be true again. Now, people who differ with this interpretation would say, no, 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 it was true in 586 BC, and it was true again in 70 AD, but now the prophecy is fulfilled. The preterist would say that. Everything that, that the prophets speak of, that's now in the past tense. Except no. Because read where God goes from there. He says, I have, yes, poured out the full cup of my wrath, but there's prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Where does God go next? Verse 21, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted. And I think God could, could be saying that to those who insist on, on reading prophecy in the past tense. <laughs> Read this. Open your minds. Open, open your eyes. Hear, hear this, you afflicted, and drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people, see, I've taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, but I will put it in the hands of those who afflict you who have said to you, lie down that we might walk all over you, and you've laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over. God is saying, I poured out a double portion of my fury upon you, but now that cup of fury, the cup of wrath, the cup of my vengeance is going to be poured out on your enemies. Has that ever been fulfilled? Maybe you could say that about 586, but you can't say that about 70 AD. Yes, Jerusalem was sacked and burned and her population driven out, but did God turn his wrath on her enemies? I don't think so. Ask yourself, who conquered Rome? Answer, no one. Rome rotted from within. Rome fell apart. So there's prophecy there yet to be fulfilled. When is it fulfilled? Against whom is it fulfilled? It's fulfilled against a revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire that we read about in the book of Daniel, that, that recoalesces, that comes back together under the leadership of Antichrist. And it's that empire and that emperor that once again tramples Jerusalem underfoot walks all over her, once again is the instrument of God's wrath, but this time is also the recipient of God's wrath. 
Rome the instrument of God's wrath in the future when they're revived under Antichrist the instrument of God's wrath will also be the recipient of God's ultimate wrath and on the other side of that chapter 52 awake awake put on your strength O Zion put on your beautiful garments O Jerusalem the holy city for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. That can't be 586 BC. Shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And we'll read the rest of chapter 52 next week. I just wanted to, to bookend it. That when God pours out his fury upon Israel's enemies, What's waiting on the other side for Israel is the kingdom with all of its promises. What do we take away from this tonight? The ladies actually have a head start because the theme for the year for our women's ministry is fear God, not man. And, 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 and their undertaking is to examine the various ways in which fear of man manifests itself, different ways that fear of man comes against us and gets in the way of God's plans for us, God's best for us. Anyone doubting the gravity of that issue, anybody doubting that that's worth spending a year digging into, look again at verse 12 and following. Because what did God just say? To fear man is to forget God. But to remember God, to revere God, to worship God, to fear God, to remember the faithfulness of God, is to remember that His love, perfect love, cast down all fear. To revere God and to worship God is to be able to say, whom shall I fear and really mean it? Fear of man is a snare, we read in Proverbs. Proverbs 20, 29, 25. Fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The fear, of the man, fear, of the, fear of man takes many forms. There's obviously persecution, tribulation. There's, there's, there's physical things to fear from one another. I was talking to Grayson earlier. She was talking about a, a, a podcast that she was listening to where, where someone did man-on-the-street interviews in, in New York asking people, do you ever think that man will abolish war? And, and most people intuitively say, it doesn't look like it. Actually, in, in, in all of recorded history, there have only been, in, in what, 4,000 years of recorded history, Historians can only find like seven years, seven out of 4,000, where there was no war at all whatsoever that, that they've been able to, to, to point at. So there's, yes, we, we have much to fear from one another. Man's inhumanity to man knows no bounds. But the greater place, the more insidious place, and I think the more destructive place that fear of man manifests is in our decision-making. How do we choose? How do we navigate this life? By pleasing God or by pleasing others? By serving God 
or by serving others. This chapter, again, reminds us of everything that Paul said in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, and we believe that, we lay hold of that, we appropriate that to our lives, we trust, actively trust in that, not just intellectually, but we actively use that as our decision-making matrix. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. Nothing. And it's good to take inventory, especially now in what for us is a time of relative safety. Do we see a little discrimination against the church creeping in around the edges? Of course we do. Persecution? Do not call what we're experiencing in this country persecution, or when you see Paul in heaven, he's going to kick you in the shins. <laughs> and so will the countless people who have given their lives for Jesus over the centuries. Now, in times of relative safety and security, is the time to ask, in whom are we trusting? What are we living for? How are we choosing? Jesus, we see in the pages of your word the joy the rejoicing, the harvest, the peace, the prosperity, the treasure that awaits those who choose you. And even in this life, choosing you can come, yes, with persecution and tribulation, but even in the midst of those storms, choosing you leads us to peace leads us to rest. Choosing anything but you. Israel is our cautionary tale. Our lives are cautionary tales. Choosing anything but you brings weeping, brings sadness, brings hopelessness. Jesus, help us to choose wisely and well. Thank you for revealing yourself in the pages of your word. Thank you for the glorious promises we find in our text tonight. Thank you for the hope that we find in you.